Three of five deaths in Kansas during the COVID-19 pandemic have befallen people 75 years of age or older. Many of these individuals were residents of long-term care facilities, which have been particularly vulnerable to the virus. The Kansas Department of Health and Environment initially resisted naming businesses, facilities, and locations with COVID-19 outbreaks. But in early September, KDHE published a site-specific list. Then, after a week, it withdrew that list, retooled it, and returned with a roster of clusters designed to reflect the present conditions where five or more positive tests could be linked. We're pleased to welcome at the Kansas Reflector podcast three people who can take us inside long-term care facilities and sort out some of the meaning of KDHE's efforts at transparency. With us are Rocky Nichols, Executive Director of the Disability Rights Center of Kansas, Barb Hickert, the state of Kansas's long-term care ombudsman, and Sean Gatewood of CanCare Advocates Network. Welcome to you all. Good to be here. Thanks. Mr. Nichols, if you could start, just begin by making the case for disclosing publicly these cluster sites. It's not without controversy. Well, the, when it comes to site-specific reporting of COVID outbreaks, uh, we feel strongly that the public has a right to know and the people who we are statutorily required to advocate for, that's people with disabilities and seniors, are the ones who are most vulnerable to catch this deadly disease, and they're least equipped uh, to fight it off. And in fact, um, people with disabilities and seniors are 50 times more likely to die uh, from COVID if they're living in a long-term care facility nationwide um, uh, people with disabilities and seniors living in these congregate care facilities make up about 1% of the population, but they make up 50% of the deaths. And so um, the public has a right to know, and it's not just a good government thing, it's a life or death situation. And so thankfully, Kansas has stepped up and has taken a significant positive step by starting to report site-specific COVID outbreak information. And we have now joined um, the national consensus on this. Uh, The vast majority of states, 36 states, including Kansas, report site-specific data or information about COVID clusters. Kansas has done a great thing with what they're reporting right now. We think this is a positive step, but there are still improvements that can be made Um, in order to have Kansas look more like the other states. So if the national consensus is a circle, we're barely inside the circle right now. We're doing something better in that we're reporting this information that the public has a right to know that's life or death information that people can make informed decisions to protect their health, protect their welfare, protect their lives. Um, Now, Uh, the onus falls on the state to make even further improvements to protect and preserve the lives of seniors and people with disabilities. Okay. I should mention that the Kansas Chamber objected to the initial form of the KDHE reporting on outbreaks. Uh, I think part of their concerns was it listed clusters that began months ago, but just hadn't quite petered out yet. Um, And so, Barb Hickert, do you have any thoughts about the, the, the notion of publicly disclosing these sites? Didn't know if there was pushback from, from facilities that are in your realm. Um, so we've not heard any pushback on this particular issue. Um, 
early on, I would say we had a lot of issues with facilities not sharing information at all with family members and residents. And you know, family members were hearing about outbreaks in their loved one's home through the press, which um, is really not the right way to, to handle that. But that has really gotten a little bit better since, since CMS made a, a ruling that families are to be notified. So that's gotten better. We still get here about that happening. Um, and, and I think earlier on, people, before we knew what was really going on, what was happening, facilities um, were embarrassed to talk about it. They felt like it was a stigma that, you know, that there's something wrong with them because they have an outbreak and facility down the road does not. Um, but I think as time goes on, that's gotten better. So it's a little bit, bit better. Um, but we also believe very strongly that it is important that consumers, um, whether they're residents that already live in those facilities and their family members, or um, potential consumers, people who want to move, need to move into a facility um, at, during this time, that they have this information about where, um, where, where there are cases and clusters available. And I think um, for families and residents that already live there, it's important because that's one of the measures with the new guidance that came out from CMS last week that's going to allow them to reconnect with their families physically within the facility. They need to know whether or not there's been a, a case in the last 14 days. So they need that information. If I'm not mistaken, Sean, maybe you know something about this. There's, there's some of these facilities are really prohibited families from coming in and interacting with individuals there. That must be a, a heartbreaking kind of thing. Oh, I'm sure. It, I'm sure it absolutely is. Uh, do you have anything? Do you have anything to add about the notion of reporting this information? That. I think that I think that that's been pretty well covered. I mean, people need to know so that they can move their loved ones in uh, into a facility if that's if that's where they're they're headed. Uh, simple enough. We know this is where the danger is at, um, and and people have should have the right to know if there's a, an outbreak of this disease in a facility that they're looking to place a family member. And I might add, Tim. This is Rocky. Um, in addition to that. Um, we strongly support on behalf of seniors and people with disabilities. We've talked a lot about facilities and that's critically important, but it's also important that public, uh, that the businesses and places of public accommodation also report their um, COVID outbreaks because again, seniors and people with disabilities are far more likely to catch the virus and because of compromised immune systems and or other underlying health conditions, or issues that may manifest themselves because of old age or because of their disability, they're more likely to die from this from this deadly disease. Um, you know, they have a right and their loved ones have a right to know in private businesses where are their outbreaks mm -hmm. because um, they need to protect themselves and make informed decisions as far as where they go, which businesses they frequent. And so obviously facilities are really important but it's also important to ensure that private businesses are uh, reporting this information. And we're glad that the, that the state has included private businesses in their uh, policy thus far. Barb Hickert, the, the, I think the latest KDHE report, essentially half of the 29 uh, locations where there was a cluster in the past couple of weeks of five or more cases were in long-term care facilities. I think Rocky's made the point that those are uh, especially vulnerable how is how are Kansas long-term facilities doing with COVID? Do you have a feel for how they've responded to COVID uh, so far? 
Well, I mean, it's it's really a huge challenge for for everybody. The residents, clearly, the the family members, but also the staff. Um, I think, for, to me, what I see is, is that the problems and the issues that we've had in long term care for a long time, that we've not dealt with, are really just becoming a hundred times more obvious. Um, primarily, the issue is staffing. So we've had a, a staffing crisis in long term care for years. Um, it is, it's, it's just incredibly worse now. Um, you've got um, staff members that, that are testing positive, that can't work, or their families, or they've got children home from school and can't work. So a lot of reasons why they can't work. Um, and, and it's hard to recruit folks to come to work in this environment right now. It's, it's really, it's, it's hard work. It's difficult work. It's challenging um, in normal times. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very good point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Sean, uh, you know, I, in terms of transparency in government, I tend to, sh- to err on the side of releasing information because the public has a right to know. But do you think having these kind of numbers out there will, will shape public perception of COVID-19? Public perception, I, I, I don't know. It probably would strengthen the perception that, the, you know, sort of the danger is, is in those that have something pre-existing or those that are aging and, and there really is a danger for everybody but clearly those are uh the folks that are sort of bearing the brunt they're they're at the highest risk um you know as far as the broader debate over COVID 19 i don't i don't know that this necessarily does but to those that, that need the information this couldn't be more valuable mm-hmm. i think the specific detailed information for me it's it makes it less uh hypothetical just the, the specificity is important to me. Rocky, how, you may have some insight into how Kansas at this moment stacks up against other states. Pick another state specifically and try to compare them. Can you do that? Oh, absolutely. I'll, I'll give you a, what I think is a, an example of a state that's done a far better job than Kansas has in reporting site-specific information and being transparent. But let me preface it by saying, we are very glad that Kansas has joined the national consensus and is doing this. We now want to challenge Kansas to do even better. Mississippi is a perfect example. Uh, Mississippi has been reporting site-specific information, but they don't have the cutoff being five or more uh, cases involving a client in a facility or involving clients in a facility. Their cutoff is one or more active cases. Mm. They have the same time frame of 14 days, which is what Kansas's time frame is, but it's one or more, and that's far superior. And here's why. Uh, there are many facilities in Kansas that are just five beds or fewer. Um, you can have home plus facilities. They might be five beds. They might be 10 or, or, or a few more beds. Uh, having five bed or five individuals in a five bed facility have active COVID cases is dramatically different um, and harder to to find out that information than if you cut it off like Mississippi does at one individual has an active case. So imagine you're a senior um, who's choosing between different home plus locations and you're trying to make an informed decision. Uh, Right now, you can have a facility out there that has four active cases. You would never know that they have four cases. Would you like to send your mom to that facility if there were four active COVID cases? Of course you wouldn't. 
Um, and because there are facilities that are so small, it makes sense to have a more reasonable number as having that number be one like Mississippi does, um, because you can ensure that people can protect their health and protect their lives. And unfortunately, that's not what's happening in our state. And um, people won't be able to, to make informed decisions to protect themselves. Then you're looking at this list of facilities, you're looking at a list of a bunch of five bed facilities. Well, if none of them have five active cases, that doesn't mean you're safe. And so we think you need to err on the side of transparency, err on the side of caution, err on the side of public health and what's in the best interest of public health and protecting people with disabilities, protecting seniors who have compromised immune system. That's to do things like what Mississippi has done and saying we're just gonna report any cluster that has one or more active cases within 14 days. Barb, I wonder if you could start, uh, <clears throat> the others can jump in, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> What's the morale like in long-term care facilities? And think about the people living there, but also among the employees. I know COVID can wear you down, just the, kind of the stress of the whole situation. Uh, but, but what's going on in, in the minds of people who live and work there? Well, you know, it's really a little hard for us to know because we're not able to be in the facilities right now either. So under normal circumstances, we would be in the facilities regularly, um, visiting with residents and talking with them and getting that sort of uh, feel for what's happening. Um, but we do talk to a lot of, of staff on the phone as well as residents and family members. And in fact, we put together a survey for families um, and that's, you can find that on our website um, where we ask them lots of questions about um, information and how they were getting it and also about visitation, but um, also let them just get, answer an open-ended question about what's going on. And those are very, very telling and, and, and a little hard to read sometimes. So um, I would tell you that, that families and residents are pretty frustrated. Um, we're, we're hearing a lot about care issues and not getting care done because there's not enough staff um, because of, of the crisis. And then, and just also just that, that isolation that residents are feeling where they're, you know, talking about wishing, wishing they just give up, that this isn't how they want to spend their last days. It's, it's, it's hard. It's, it's hard for us to hear. And I'm sure it's hard for the facility staff to also hear that and also be working every day, putting their lives um, at risk going or to work every day at the same time. Um, yeah, so all of that's profound. Rocky, Sean, anything to add there? No, just, you know, from people with disabilities who we talk to, you know, obviously we talk to them um, first and foremost, not to the staff, but, but they could see it. They could see the caregivers, uh, which include their agency supports, the people who staff these facilities. It's, it's tough. I mean, th this COVID has upended uh, every aspect of everyone's lives, including the people who live in these places and including the people who work in these places. And, and, you know, this global pandemic is having a huge harmful impact on everyone. But just because we're in a global pandemic, it's not the time to limit transparency. We're glad the state has done what they've done. And now that we have you know, additional examples of how many other states are doing it better, Kansas can improve upon the great first step that they've made. Sean, my question for you is about 
you know, what changes to the reporting that you might want to see? I think Rocky touched on this earlier. But originally, the KDHE looked at 20 or more positive tests in a business, and then they would list that name publicly. And for other gatherings or facilities, it was five positive tests. Now they've kind of settled on five positive tests as the threshold. Rocky advocated dropping that down lower, perhaps. Do you have uh, thoughts about how you might want to modify the reporting? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I, I would just say that I'm with Rocky on, you know, this is a pretty monumental step, you know. So getting this reporting that we have is excellent and, and, and we very much appreciate it. If, if I were to design it, it would probably be, um, you know, I would probably leave the businesses on there in five and, and the reduced uh, sort of uh, turnover time of 14 days, I think is just fine. But I think that in these sort of, you know, close quarter living settings, um, you know, I think that, that reducing that down to one active case would be prudent. Um, I, I don't really, I don't want to nitpick on, you know, sort of the businesses and whatever else, but, you know, the viral load in a congregate living setting with people with compromised immune systems can just, you know, run like wildfire. So, um, I, I think that that's, I think that would be, a, a, in my dream world, that's how I would do it. One of the criticisms of the original KDHE analysis was that it, it grabbed clusters that were initiated months ago, and we'll say they were very large, a meatpacking plant, for example, with hundreds of cases, and now they continue to have a handful a week. Uh, but that cluster remained on the list, and so I think KDHE tried to move that aside and focus more on the present. Do you think it might be beneficial to also have on the KDHE website that kind of cumulative information about clusters? Would that be helpful? Because you could look, a person trying to place a parent, we'll say, could look back at the history of that mm -hmm. facility better. Any thoughts? Yeah, I, mean, yeah, I, I agree. Cumulative information, uh, adding up uh, the, the information in different ways, um, reporting and cumulative numbers of deaths and, and the cluster numbers would all be very helpful and it's information the public has a right to know and it would help people with disabilities, seniors and their loved ones make better decisions, absolutely. Barb, do you concur? I do, I do agree and I, I think, you know, the other issue is, is facilities who have had a case and, and are an outbreak and have resolved that. I think that's important information for um, consumers to have and to see that that worked and how that worked and, and be, have that information and ask questions about that. Mm -hmm. You know, what, how did you do that and what happened? And those are good questions to, to, to make as you ask, as you make decisions, I think. Yeah. Good point. Also, Barb, uh, we were speaking earlier and you, you mentioned uh, something about involuntary discharge complaints, which I think is kind of up your alley. You, you received some of those complaints as the ombudsman. Could you kind of explain what that is and what's going on and whether it's been changed at all during the COVID pandemic? So um, we, we have for years been um, involved in a lot of um, issues around involuntary discharges. And that, that's been our um, largest complaint that we've investigated for as long as I've been the state ombudsman. And it's not just true in Kansas, that's a, a national um, trend for all ombudsmen across the country. Um, so it, it is a common thing. And, and the two things that we see really um, that happen in one is, is for non-payment. That's one of the reasons why we all see involuntary discharges occur. Um, but the other more 
almost more common one really is the issues surrounding folks with dementia or mental health issues that have um, express um, behaviors or issues that cause the, the facility problems with, with thinking they can care for the resident. Um, and, and so a lot of times what happens in those cases is that they'll transfer the resident to the hospital and then um, refuse to take them back. Um, one of the most powerful examples, I guess, during COVID early on was a resident with dementia in a long-term care facility for dementia. It was an assisted living facility, but they um, specifically dealt with dementia. Um, within you know, a couple of weeks of not seeing his loved one who was there every day, lost, you know, started to, to um, ex exhibit some behaviors and um, became more anxious daily. Um, the, the wife, the spouse kept asking to be able to come in, you know, because she was sure she could, you know, get him to, to relax and to calm down. Um, but that never happened until the day they said they needed to take him to the hospital. Um, again, the, she asked to be able to be there um, because he was, he was very much out of control at this point. Um, to try to calm him down for the transfer, again refused, and um, instead four police officers came in uh, uh. to get him out of the building and into the hospital, when very likely she might have been able to do this. And they also, the, the, um, the hospital did not keep him as a, as a patient because he had no medical reason to be there, um, but they would not take him back that night. We had to help find some other location. So so the state, somebody would have to step in and try to find another residential place for that individual. Well, I mean, who's we, what? We I'm just kind of curious. Where we does somebody go? Um, well, they they wound up going to um, a a psyche a geriatric psych unit that night for a couple okay. of days until they could find placement. But the original hospital would not. <clears> I want to ask you all a broad question and you could, it's not the Christmas holiday season yet to, to give gifts, but if you could identify one aspect of, of how the state or federal government works with residential facilities, what reform you have in mind that would help these uh, individuals, employees, staff, or, or the individuals living there, uh, what would you be? Sean, do you have an idea? Well, either, uh, you know, be the reform god here. <laughs> you know that I think we've got to look sort of ahead of where we're at right right now. I mean, reporting is great and keeping you know families informed. That that stuff is is awesome. But um, I think that this has highlighted another issue that we have, and that is that we, frankly, were we had quite a bit of you know those nursing home beds were were sort of taken up. And you know, there's staffing issues and whatever else. And really, for best outcomes for people, they need to be outside of you know these congregate living settings, just in general. And so, you know, there's there's programs going on out there. Um, the various managed care organizations that run the Kansas uh, Medicaid program are working on. And then there's some additional federal dollars out there uh, that we hope the state of Kansas will take advantage of. And in getting out, getting people out and, and keeping them out of sort of congregate living settings to begin with. Um, you know, nobody wants to go to a nursing home. If we can figure out how to keep folks that don't need it, need it, um, you know, for as long as possible, I think we'll all be better off. So that's my, that's my broad reform. Rocky, what's your top of your wish list? 
Um, I'd build on top of that and just put a finer point on what Sean said. Uh, four key words, money follows the person. Kansas has eliminated its money follows the person program. And that's a program that provides federal dollars to help move people from institutions and congregate settings to the community to live in their own home. Mm -hmm. And this is the worst time in the history of our state to end money follows the person. Why? Because of the statistics I just gave you. People in congregate care settings make up 1% of the population and 50% of the deaths. People in congregate care settings are 50 times more likely to die from COVID. Yet Kansas has eliminated its Money Follows a Person program, has no plans to reopen it. And guess what? Congress is appropriating new dollars as we speak. Um, there will be dollars for Money Follows a Person coming out of Congress, but you have to have an active program. Kansas has axed its program, and now is the worst time to do that. Congress knows that. They're putting money in it. They want states to do it. Kansas needs to get with the program and start the Money Follows the Program uh, up again to help protect the lives of people with disabilities and help people exit these congregate care facilities at the very time when COVID is threatening their lives. Rocky, real quickly, I, I can remember the Money Follows the Person yeah. I, concept covering things in the state house, but when did, when did that get axed and why? It's been a couple of years ago. Um, you'd have to ask the state of Kansas mm. why they've axed it and why they're not going to start it again. All right, Barb, uh, what, would you, what, what reform would you seek from your vantage point? Um, well, I will first say I agree with um, these fine gentlemen. I think that's an important issue that needs to get looked at. Um, there are res there are individuals, though, that are not going to be able to do that. There, we are not going to be able to get rid of this need to have some type of, um, of, of care that is outside of the home. And, and that needs to be looked at in, in terms of what that's going to look like. Um, and there are several things that I would say need to be looked at there. Um, one of those would be, again, back to staffing and to establish some type of, of real, genuine um, staffing ratio requirements for staff, for frontline staff that are giving care, um, that are meaningful, that protect residents and that give them enough staff to, to meet those residents' needs. And, and so that people can understand what that looks like. Right now, it's really just to, to, the, to the needs. They just need to staff to meet the needs. And that's, nobody understands what that means. Families don't understand what it means. Um, residents don't understand what it means. Frankly, regulators don't really know what it means. Like they know, you know, you, you sort of know it when you see it, but you can't really prove it. So it's hard to do that without an actual um, number. Um, and, and there's the number that's um, really thrown around by advocates is 4.1 hours per resident per day, that that's what it takes hmm. minimally to meet residents' needs. Okay. Can I get a second? Yes, sir. You can, <clears throat> on the rebound. Yes, sir. Here's my, here's my next one is uh, expand Medicaid. Um, and I know that seems a little bit out of what we're talking about, but all of the people we're talking about that we count on for people to live in their homes, in the community, uh, that staff, as well as much of the staff that is in nursing homes, um, their families, maybe themselves, don't have insurance. They, they're just not jobs that pay a lot of money 
um, and, the, and sometimes they don't tend to have to carry insurance with them. Uh, so you're saying some of the people that work in these facilities that we're talking about, they the, the employees themselves don't have health insurance, and with Medicaid expansion, but I, I think it's more common that it's probably their families that wouldn't. But okay. sometimes, yes, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> many times, the personal care attendants that are in the field, um, they don't. A lot, many times, they don't have insurance. Um, and you're talking about a pandemic, and you're talking about People these people are working in these facilities, you know, that right. you would think. Or the, or the people that are in a community. Yeah. Either way, people need to have access to, to okay. basic health insurance during a pandemic. <clears throat> um, otherwise, you know, you're just more of a, a, a liability to be, you know, sort of spreading the disease because you're not seeking care and getting adequate care um, early enough. And so that helps with some of the staffing issues. Um, either in the facility or outside, and, and the, the families of those that are providing the care in the facility. And many times what you find is people, they may have a, an employer that um, the employer themselves will offer the insurance. Let's so say, you know, if we're talking about a nursing home, then that nursing home will, but it, and they'll cover their employee, but not necessarily the family. The family doesn't, there's not really an affordable option to cover the whole thing. And that's, that's not just for nursing homes. That's all over the place. Um, and I will retouch, I wasn't implying before that, uh, you know, we can sort of end the need for nursing homes um, in any way. There's plenty. I don't think they're going away anytime soon. Right. So this isn't about that, but it, but the folks that we can get out, we need to get out. No, I, think that's people, a, I think that's a generally accepted philosophy that people's well-being and their, their quality right. of life would be better if they could live in a house least, like Least restrictive, like restrictive setting. Yeah, that's it. That's the right term. I think we're going to have to leave it there. I want to thank our very informed guests for their time today. Rocky Nichols, Executive Director of the Disability Rights Center of Kansas. Barb Hickert, the State of Kansas's Long-Term Care Ombudsman. And Sean Gatewood of CanCare Advocates Network. Thanks to you all. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. You can find other episodes of the Candace Reflector Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or at kansasreflector.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>